the circumbroken world trouble your heart and make you anxious? Where do you go? What do you do? Who do you look to? And we saw last time how Jesus prepared his disciples for dealing with their own troubled hearts. And there's principles here for us to apply to ours. And they're troubled because Jesus tells these men who have given up their entire lives to follow him that he will soon be leaving them and that where he's going, they won't be able to follow. So you can, you can get an idea of their, their unsettledness, right? We've given up everything to follow Jesus and now he's leaving us and he's saying that where he's going, we can't follow. And Jesus warns them on the heels of that that one of them is, is a betrayer and tells one of them that he'll actually deny him three times. And then we see Jesus addressing their troubled hearts by commanding them to believe, to believe in him. And he gives them three promises. These were my, my points from last time. Uh, he gives them the promise of heaven, that future promise, that no matter how bad things get, that they always have this future promise awaiting them, that they would be with Jesus again one day in heaven. And then he gives them the promise of the path to heaven, that we, we won't get to heaven by trying harder, but only by trusting Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the destination, but he's also our transportation. He's our way. He's our means to getting there. And then thirdly, he promised power from heaven, that we would do greater works than Jesus through born-again, spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that he would resource us even from heaven by giving us everything that we ask for in prayer offered in his name that brings glory to the Father, that he would resource us with what we need. And now today we'll see Jesus promise even more power from heaven to comfort our troubled hearts. So let's get to the Word of God now. Please turn with me to John chapter 14. We're going to be in verses 15 to 26. If you need to use one of our pew Bibles, you're more than welcome to. Grab one of those. You'll find today's passage on page 1071. Once you're there, I invite you to please stand with me out of reverence for God's Word and follow along with me as I read. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, 
said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. and My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is God's word. Pray with me. Father, send your Holy Spirit now to illumine our hearts and our minds, to be amazed and comforted by the exalted Christ in your inspired word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Now remember, this passage is a continuation of Jesus' words of comfort to his disciples in what's known as the farewell discourse. So let's remember some of the context. Jesus began preparing for uh, his departure uh, by sharing these words with his disciples at the end of chapter 13. It says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus' point here is that he's not leaving his disciples alone, he's leaving them together. So as he is leaving, Jesus is forming a new community of people who would be defined by radical love for one another. This is the church. And then Jesus gave them a future promise. We saw this last time, two weeks ago, and, and at the beginning of chapter 14, where he says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So they will have each other and they will have Jesus again in the future when he comes again. But now, in verse 16, he's giving them something more. He's promising more power from heaven. But this power is not a what, it's a who. Jesus promises to give them another helper, it says. So we're going to work through this passage and see how this passage answers three questions about this additional helper. These questions we're going to look at are, who is this help? How does he help? And who is this help for? So those are our three guiding questions this morning. So let's jump right in. Who is this help? First, let's talk about this word helper that we have in our text. It's a fascinating one. It gets translated in a variety of ways depending on what English translation you are reading. You may see the word counselor or comforter or advocate or even strengthener, encourager, helper. Whenever a word can be translated so many different ways, it should tell you something. That there's really no perfect word in our language to capture all of what this Greek word really means. This word has a richness about it that can't adequately be described by using just one English word. This Greek word is the word paraclete. And it's only found five times 
in the entire Bible, and four of them are here in John's Gospel. Two in our passage today. And he uses this term exclusively when teaching about the Holy Spirit. Now, if we take this word apart, para is the Greek word which means beside. And kaleo is a word that means to call. It means to speak a message or to tell the truth. So a paraclete is not someone who goes in front of you and says, hey, let's go. He's not someone who follows behind you and says, hey, let's get going. He's someone who comes alongside of you. Now, my preference is to use the English word advocate because the Latin word for paraclete is advocare, ad meaning alongside, vocare meaning to speak, and this is where we get our English word vocal, vocare. So putting this all together now, an advocate is someone who comes alongside of you, who is for you, and who speaks the truth to someone. An advocate is someone who is a, a substitute, a representative, someone who's with you, representing you, a helper. And this word is found outside the Bible in secular Greek to describe uh, what we could call a defense attorney in a court of law, your lawyer. He's not behind you or in front of you, but alongside of you. He represents you. He's one who deals with the powers that be on your behalf. But remember, Jesus says that he will send them another advocate. This means that they already have one advocate. And now Jesus promises to give them another one. But to understand how this new advocate works, the Holy Spirit, we need to understand how the first one works. Now remember I said that this word paraclete, it's only found five times in the New Testament. And four of them are in John's Gospel. They all refer to the Holy Spirit. Well, the only other time we see this word paraclete, we see it used in John's epistle, his first epistle. In 1 John 2.1, he writes this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a paraclete, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we need to know that Jesus is our first paraclete, our first advocate, and understanding how he works in this role will help us understand how the Holy Spirit works as our additional advocate. So three quick points about Jesus as our first paraclete, our first advocate. First, we need to understand that all of us stand before God in his courtroom accused. The reason we need an advocate, period, is because we've all rejected God because of sin. And we are all in a position of being accused this is the problem we see in 1 John 2, 1. It's our sin. And because of our sin, we stand accused in the courtroom of God. Secondly, if you've received Jesus as your Savior, he becomes your advocate in the courtroom of God. He stands with you before the judgment seat of God. 
He's your representative. He's your defense attorney. And if he's eloquent, you're eloquent. If his case succeeds, your case succeeds. If it fails, you fail. He is your representative. And thirdly, Jesus doesn't just stand up there with any old case, but with an infallible case, a case that cannot fail. Jesus doesn't, his case doesn't consist of flattery, trying to arouse sympathy before the Father. He doesn't say to the Father, you know, my client, he knows he should love you with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He tries really hard, but he's really had a bad week. You know, he's had a rough life. Could you maybe cut him a little slack here, give him another chance? He's not that kind of paraclete. How depressing would that be if that's the kind of advocate that Jesus was? I mean, every time we failed, we'd have to wonder, how long can Jesus keep this up? How long will God have have mercy here? How long can Jesus really flatter him? Thank God this is not what the Bible says Jesus' case is as our advocate. Thank God. A A good defense attorney appeals to the law. And this is what Jesus does here. Here's his case, ready? Have they lied? Yes. Have they been selfish? Yes. Have they been bitter? Yes. Have they failed to serve others? Absolutely. Have they failed to love you as they should? Yes. Well then, if that's the case, your law demands death and blood for these offenses, and here it is. I pay their debt with my blood and with my flesh. I have made full payment, and the law says that you cannot take two payments for the same debt. Therefore, on these grounds, I demand that my clients be acquitted. That's Jesus' infallible case. Do you see how incredible this is? Jesus, our advocate, doesn't plead with the Father for mercy. He appeals to the law and the demands for justice. But he's the one who picks up our tab, who lived and died in our place as our substitute. That's an infallible case, church. Understand how radically liberating this is? In every other religion and philosophy, the justice of God is against you. It's on the other side of the scale. And on your side of the scale, you tirelessly pile up all kinds of good works and and good deeds, hoping to balance out the scale. All the time, never really knowing if it's enough. This is how moralists work, right? I just got to do a little bit more in hopes of tipping that scale. This is how uh, Mormonism works furiously trying to live in a way they hope will balance those scales of God's justice. What an incredible burden. Living means that you are, living this way means that you're trying to be your own advocate. And when you fail, it's devastating because it means that your case is unraveling. Your case is coming apart. And you're getting anxious about Standing in that courtroom, wondering if you've done enough. 
But here's the wonder, the amazement of the Christian faith. If you trust Jesus to be your Savior, which makes Jesus your, your advocate, then the most incredible thing happens. If Jesus is with you, the justice of God shifts to your side of the scale. Do you understand? This is what it means to be a Christian. If you think that Jesus is primarily your example and that being a Christian is about trying to do your best to live like Jesus, then you have no idea what it means to actually be a Christian because you're still trying to be your own advocate. Being a Christian is is a matter of a position. It's a standing. It means having Jesus as your advocate. And in order to have Jesus as your advocate, you need to understand that you have no case on your own. And you have no chance on your own as your own advocate in the courtroom of God. You've got to know your need for Jesus. If Jesus is only your example, that's the most depressing position for you to be in. All he will do as your example only is make you feel like a terrible failure and that you never can live up to. As a model, Jesus is, is a crushing burden. But as your advocate, knowing all the great things that he did, he did in your place, beside you, and for you, that's freedom. So now that we know how Jesus functions as our first advocate, we can better now understand the kind of help that the Holy Spirit gives as our second advocate. So let's move on to our second point now. How does he help? So try to think of it like this. Jesus, our first advocate, is an advocate on the outside. And he is with us and for us in the courtroom of God as he represents us before the Father. But now think of the Holy Spirit as our second paraclete, our second advocate, as one who is on the inside and who speaks the truth to us to show us Jesus. J.I. Packer said that the Holy Spirit is like a floodlight on Christ because the purpose of a floodlight is not for it to show you itself, but for it to show you what it's illuminating. So the Holy Spirit, as our second advocate, does not speak to us about himself. He comes to us to shine a light on our first advocate. And he's an inner advocate because our, our, our hearts are fickle. And our hearts are stubborn and they're prone to wandering and forgetting. So when your heart is bitter, this inner advocate comes to you and says, How can you be bitter? Look at Jesus. Look at what he has done for you. Look at his forgiveness and look at his mercy. And the more he shows you Christ, the more you're able to forgive. Or maybe you're, you're worried or anxious about something. Then the inner advocate comes to you and he says, look at the high price that Jesus paid for you. Do you really think that he would go and endure the horrors of the cross to have you only to let you go? Trust him. Trust him. This is the job of the Holy Spirit. 
to be your advocate on the inside to show you Jesus when you need it. Now look at how we see this in our text. Look at verses 18 and 19. Jesus is physically leaving the world and and the world will no longer see him, but he's not leaving his people as orphans because in another sense, he will come to us even though he's leaving us and we will see him. He comes to us through the Holy Spirit. We have access to the presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Now look at verse 20. The Spirit will cause us to know that we are united with Jesus. He'll shine a light on that reality, saying, look, you are united with Christ. The Holy Spirit gives us assurance. And then in verse 21, Jesus says that he will manifest himself to those who have the Spirit. And when Judas asks, how can this be? Jesus clarifies by saying that that he and the Father will come to us and they will make their home with us. Remember two weeks ago, I talked about that rare word that we saw in verse 2 of chapter 14, moni. It's, it's the dwelling place that, that the, with the Father that Jesus goes to prepare for us. It's, it's our heavenly home. Well, here it is. The, the only other time we see it in the scriptures and we find the same word where Jesus says that he and the Father will come to us and make their moni, their home, their dwelling with us now. We don't have to wait for it. It's not someday we'll have it in heaven, but we can have it now. At least we can experience a degree of it now. So last time I emphasized the glory of our future heavenly home that awaits us. But now Jesus is saying that we will get to experience this dwelling with him and the Father now. So look back at the end of verse 19. Jesus says that he he lives. Because he lives, we also will live. Now it's true that we have a resurrection to look forward to. And that these immediate disciples would see him risen again after uh, he dies. Uh, He'd come back to life. He would show themselves to him. And we have a future resurrection to look forward to. But the context here is all about the present and how the Spirit helps us now in that in-between period, between him going and his second coming. So I take this to mean that by the Spirit's indwelling, we experience a degree of eternal life now. Listen to how the Apostle Paul explains this role that the Spirit plays in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, In him you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now notice that word guarantee, some other translations uh, render this to mean something of 
of a, a down payment or a, a deposit. So think of the Holy Spirit here as a down payment or a deposit that ensures our, our full heavenly insurance or inheritance, rather. We get to experience Jesus' presence now. We don't have to wait for it. It's not entirely in the future. We can experience Jesus' presence now. And this eternal life, eternal life doesn't start at the second coming or, or when you, uh, at the end of your life, go home to be with Jesus. Eternal life doesn't start then. It starts now. And the Father and the Son both make their dwelling with us here, now. This isn't something that's entirely in the future. This is mind-blowing. There's one more thing the Spirit does as our advocate in verse 26. This verse is, is a unique uh, and special uh, application. Uh, first, Jesus' immediate apostles, those in the room with him in this passage, And it has a more broad application for us today. First, it means that the Holy Spirit would bring to the remembrance of the apostles everything that Jesus had taught them. This means that as they begin to teach the early church and to write down the New Testament scriptures, that the Holy Spirit would be with them, alongside of them, teaching them, helping them to remember, speaking the truth to them, reminding them of all that Jesus taught. So this, this verse should first give us rock-solid confidence in the accuracy and in the reliability of the New Testament scriptures because Jesus, Jesus promised supernatural, divine help for these apostles as they wrote down uh, the letters and the writings of the New Testament because he would ensure that they would remember all that Jesus taught them. Now, secondly, we can apply this more broadly to us today to mean that the Holy Spirit will instruct us as we read the scriptures and as we hear them taught and as we hear them preached and that he will bring them to our hearts and to our minds in moments when we need them most. I mean, have you ever had that experience when a verse you were taught or memorized, even as a child, just comes to your mind in, in a moment when you needed it most? This is the Holy Spirit. This is the advocate, the inner advocate, speaking truth to you, reminding you of what Jesus has taught. Now, one final point. Who is this hope or this help? Who is this help for? The, the Spirit is not given to the world, Jesus says. The world will not see Jesus anymore. They will not have this floodlight of the Holy Spirit. You've probably already detected a thread that runs through this passage. Four times Jesus says that those who love him will keep his commands or his words or his teaching. Verses 15, 21, 23, and negatively he puts it in verse 24. These are the people who are given the Spirit and all the benefits of this inner advocate. So we need to understand what it means to be this people. Those who love Jesus and keep his commands. Now the Apostle Paul reminds us that that God 
didn't wait for us to love him first. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we had wanted nothing to do with him, he loved us first. And this is what John believed too because John writes it in his first epistle. In uh, chapter 4, verse 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. So God's love precedes and it motivates our love for him. We don't muster up love for God in our own strength in order to receive the Holy Spirit. Now what does it mean to keep his commandments here? Does it mean that a true Christian will always keep every single one of his commands and moral teachings? I think you can sense the crushing burden that this would create. When every time we mess up, we begin to wonder and question whether we're truly Christians because we're not keeping his commandments as perfectly as we ought, right? So is that what this text means? Instead, I think we need to understand Jesus' commands in the context of John's gospel itself. What are the things that Jesus has commanded in John's gospel? If you do a, a quick survey of John's gospel, you will find very few moral commands. Instead, what you find overwhelmingly are commands like this. Receive me, chapter 1, verse 12. Follow me, verse 42. We're, we see this command to ask him for living water that we may never thirst again, chapter 4. In chapter 6, he says that he is the bread of life that we must eat, that we may never hunger again. If anyone thirsts, come to me. There's a command, come to me and drink in chapter 7. Believe in the light, chapter 12. Believe in God. Believe also in me in chapter 14. These are the commands that we see again and again and again. Abide with me. We're going to see that when we get into chapter 15. Abide with me. Believe in me. Receive me. Come to me. Eat the bread of life. Drink the living water. These are the commands that we see overwhelmingly in John's gospel. Put in a wide variety of ways to obey Jesus' commands is to believe. It's to believe, to trust him, to be the advocate you need before the Father. To trust that his life was lived for you and that his death was died, uh, was given for you and that his, his resurrection is your life. Payment for your sin. This is what it means to obey the commands and those who obey that command to believe have encountered his love because we know that we only love because he first loved us. So what it requires is an encounter with Jesus by which you truly understand the advocate that he wants to be for you and what he's done for you. And you respond in love by obeying that command to believe. That's who this help is for. That's who the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the, the inner advocate, that's who this is for, for those who believe and trust Jesus for salvation. Loving Jesus begins by encountering his love for you, results in your love for him, joyfully obeys his command to believe. 
Father, we thank you.